Hi, everybody. Jamie here with a timely plug for listeners in the New York City area. I am doing a brand new live show with my buddy Jake Flores at TVI in New York City, September 2nd. The show is called The Woke Mob because everyone knows that that's who we are. We love to cancel. We're the woke mob. Uh, It's going to have comedy, music, late night vibes, games, surprises, and we're also going to have some guests. That's right. Um, we've got some familiar faces. We will have Andy from the Antifada. He's going to do a special performance for us. We are going to have Katie Halper, who you may know from the Katie Halper show. Um, and we're also going to have a very cool musical guest, a band called Bimbos, that I met when I was down in Atlanta. So, uh, yeah, everybody come. It's going to be at 7.30 p.m. sharp at TVI in Ridgewood. Uh, tickets are very cheap. I'll put a link to them in the show description. And if you can't make it down there, don't worry, because uh, we're going to be recording it as well. And it will be online on you know various platforms. So I think that's it. Everybody come. I'm very excited about this thing. And um, yeah, now back to your regularly scheduled programming. everybody. Welcome to Lost Futures, a series by Everybody Loves Communism, where we discuss many potential worlds and possibilities that the capitalists don't want us to think about, despite it being lauded in their bourgeois media. Um, I'm Jorge Rocha. I'm Aaron Thorpe. And today, we have a wonderful, great episode for you on a documentary series about aging virtual worlds, one of these many possibilities and worlds we should be thinking about uh that's now streaming on season two on means tv and we have today the two creators of, of this amazing documentary series derek murphy and mitchell zemel hello i'm derek murphy nice to be here hi i'm mitchell hi um <laughs> just really appreciate you guys being here uh i think the the documentary came out what last year i think or was it about a year and a half ago Oh, season one. Oh boy. Yeah. Mitchell, do you remember when did that come out? <laughs> no, it wasn't last year. It was over a year ago. I, I believe it was February 2021. Okay. That sounds uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I sort of I, I guess my interest in it sort of coincided with um my uh other interests as well, because this was still during the pandemic. It'd been one year during the pandemic. And um I guess we'll talk about it a lot because this overlaps with a lot of the users of these virtual worlds, um, especially in games like um, Gemstone, the Gemstone 4, that's the latest episode or episode you guys are going to release um, tomorrow. We're recording this on Sunday, yes. uh, mm-hmm. June 18th. There's also Second Life as well. So I traveled into my own kind of escapism. I think that's kind of why I started posting sci-fi or kind of why this offshoot of our podcast, uh, this series that we have kind of got started too. And um, I don't know, I've always like, uh, Hori could talk about it probably a little bit more too, because Hori, you were talking about this in chat with like MUDs, right? Like these um, right. multi-user dungeons, I think, like these virtual chat, like RPG chat rooms, right? Text-based chats. And um, yeah, I kind of like dived into not only escapism, but sort of like the retro lost future, right? That I think that you guys are trying to hint at. And we'll, we'll talk about that too, because there's a lot of tension between 
the promise of what the internet was supposed to be. I think um, you guys kind of say it was supposed to be, um, there's supposed to be cl uh, disclosure and openness and transparency. Um, and then what it turned out into, you know? Um, so I guess like, uh, I mean, I guess this is Jorge's question, I guess I asked, but we both, when we were both interested, what, what even got you guys into doing the show? Because it's such a niche interest. And it also made me remember my early days of like kind of AOL chat rooms where I would like go into specifically, like I was an evil kid, man. I'd do like a harass people. <laughs> I would go into like Christian chat rooms and pretend to be like a Satanist, you know, like shit like that. <laughs> or I would find community with games like MMORPGs, like Rose Online. I don't know if you guys know of that. Um, I never got into World of Warcraft, right. but what made, what made right. you guys, what, what made you guys want to get into this? Is part of your own personal history with the internet is also, I guess, combined with your politics and the need to kind of preserve these uh, virtual worlds. Yeah, that's definitely a huge part of it. I think, um, so where this really got started was uh, Mitchell and I were working together on a feature film that is uh, also on Means TV that we made before Preserving Worlds. It was called Sarasota Half in Dream, and it's about um, our hometown. It's sort of one of those like essay film documentaries about a city kind of things like My Winnipeg or Sans Soleil or, you know, stuff like that. And um, so it was about our hometown of Sarasota, Florida. And we did a lot of like looking at um, abandoned spaces around the city, like places that uh, young people were kind of repurposing for their own ends, like doing, like taking these abandoned places and like finding new ways to like find community or like transcend this boring suburb, you know? Can I just and, say real quick, as Gibson says, not to cut you off, just you just remind me of a quote, <clears throat> um, as Gibson says in um, Neuromancer. Actually, it's not Neuromancer. I think it's in, um, I think it's in, is it Johnny Mnemonic? I forget what short story it is, but um, the street finds its uses for things, right? Yes. Which is kind of like the the cyberpunk kind of like mantra, you know, Um, which again, we could talk about that because I think that kind of fell through. But anyway, continue. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's exactly the sort of thing we were trying to do, right? Like show how the street finds uses for itself. And uh, as part of that, um, we filmed an, an interview that was sort of, it became the uh, like pilot for Preserving Worlds. It was like, I had heard about this guy who was in this uh, old virtual world called World's Chat that was this very corporate platform from like 1995 that uh, is still online right now for some pretty crazy reasons. But um, And that's your first episode is on World's Chat, right? That's oh, right, for, yeah. Season one, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that was originally yeah. going to be a scene in Sarasota Half and Dream, and it was like this thematic continuity of sorts where it's like um, people taking this old corporate uh, like virtual world and like repurposing it and finding new ways to use it and meeting people in it and all that stuff. Uh, but it ended up being the only thing in the whole film that had nothing to do with Sarasota. So <laughs> it was like we cut it for that reason, but liked it enough that we wanted to like do something more with it, turned it into its own standalone short. And then uh, Means TV ended up like really enjoying the short and uh, we decided to try and turn it into a series. But I guess like more about like the subject matter. So I'm a librarian and I've also worked in archives as well. I'm very interested in preservation and I'm also just a big like video game, like liker, I guess I like video games. So, um, you know, video game preservation is something that is supremely important, I think, but that doesn't get a lot of resources oftentimes. Um, it's a very expensive endeavor. It's something that there's not a lot of funding for. Uh, and, um, so I was doing a lot of research around game preservation when I was studying library science in school and um, ended up writing this big paper about the preservation of online video games, because I find that to be especially interesting because, you know, software preservation in itself is quite difficult. 
but when you take this extra layer on top of like an online game where there's like a community, the other players in the game and what they're doing and the culture they've built up matters. If you're talking like history, like mm -hmm. researching these games, looking at why they're important and what they meant and what they were like, um, you know, a historian in 50 years going to need to know about the the culture and community and what it was like like to actually play the game with people yeah. so if the software is preserved you boot it up it's empty it doesn't tell you as much right so uh, that also is sort of a interesting like that's sort of where the series is coming from in a way is like uh mm. how do you really preserve an online game well you document the people in it and what they're doing and what it means to play the game and that's kind of what we're trying to do with the series as well Go ahead, Hori. Go ahead, Hori. Sorry. Okay. No, it's just like I think on this now. I think about this a lot, Derek, in terms of like both of you. Uh, you mentioning that I think is really, really uh, revealing because I, given like what we are, like you mentioned, like it's really hard to preserve a virtual kind of community. And like I think about this a lot in terms of like people were talking very frightfully about the possibility of Twitter just dying back like mm -hmm. end of last year, but. It's not because so much of the community, although it is that, it's but it, it's more also there's so much knowledge that just exists virtually that's not on paper, and you know I I I see what you mean in terms of like I think perhaps like your experience in terms of being a librarian kind of influences this kind of thinking about ar archiving any of this information, you know it it you know this is not you know very famous Marxist you know Vince Cerf. You know, but for those listening, it's like it's a joke. But Vince Cerf is the creator of the internet, and he uh, he said something I think a few like a few years ago, which I was kind of like, this this seems kind of bad. That this guy saying that in the sense that he said that the internet has enabled the possibility of another dark age in terms of historical preservation. So do you, so like, do you think then part of like, a aspect of this project is trying to cons like experimenting and considering how this is even possible for like long-term archiving of this information. Yeah. Can, can I ask a quick follow-up to actually to that? Cause I think this is part of it too. Um, Mark Fisher in ghosts of my life, when he talks about hauntology, he says that loss itself is lost. Right. Um, meaning, I guess, like, you know, with the, um, the digital age, right. That we have this, um, uh, deluge of information, right. That, um, that um, you can kind of observe all of culture from one standpoint and history, cultural history from one standpoint, but that's not really true, right? And Jorge, as you were saying, it's important to archive, I think, like not just these sort of the histories of the technologies, but also you guys covered this in um, the documentary, the communities, the personal mm -hmm. moments that people had. And you talk about in um, games like Destiny 1 and 2, how they've completely, after, I guess, the, uh, the new DLCs, right? They've taken away all of that stuff. So why do you, again, like to answer Hoy's question, why is it so important to archive like these digital online spaces? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, just talking about the digital dark age idea, like I do think that that is a serious threat. Um, the idea that, you know, if something is on paper, like printed, written down on paper, you know, you put that in climate control, you put it on a shelf, um, you, you check on it now and then, make sure there's no mold or anything like that. But it'll last, right? I mean, it's not as difficult to keep um, readable as a digital file, right? A digital file, you need a certain type of computer running a certain operating system, running the software that can read the file. And um, you need to keep that electronic storage like going and electronic storage fails a lot faster than uh, paper. 
And uh, on top of that, you need people actually working to preserve this stuff, which is often not happening right now, unfortunately. Plus, a lot of stuff online is like in proprietary like systems or platforms like, you know, your photos that are on Facebook, like if Facebook shuts down or makes some arbitrary decision to delete everything on it or delete certain things on it, then uh, your photos might all go away if you don't like actively go and hold on to them, which not everybody does. So I, I don't. I think about this with Google Drive all the time and Google Photos. Mm-hmm. I have stories that I've written and I'm like, man, I should probably print them out at least to have them like physically. Yeah. Because if, if like we have some like blackout situation, uh, if anyone's seen Blade Runner, the kind of freak Blade Runner 2049 and the kind of prequel back story to that, um, there's this worldwide blackout that pretty much puts humanity back in the dark ages. Yeah. Should probably exactly. think about that. It's probably it, it could happen. Um, yeah. And surely we'll lose some things. Like there's no doubt in my mind. I mean, if you think about like uh, some 200 year old or 100 year old like diary from like your great grandfather or whatever, like you might just find that in a trunk and you can read it. But um you know, if you've got some word documents with your journal in it or a blog or whatever, like, is that really as likely to survive a hundred years? It's not like tucked in your, in your trunk or whatever. Right. Um, but anyway, like in terms of the importance of, uh, preserving online games, I've been just talking and talking, maybe Mitchell, do you want to talk about that? Um, I did have a thought on that and it's, a slightly different kind of Fisherian idea, but um, thinking about almost like an analog to the idea of capitalist realism and not being able to imagine a future of sorts. I guess it kind of relates to the ontology. Uh, I feel like with the internet today, it's both an increasingly prevalent part of everyone's lives. Like we're spending more and more of our time on the computer and on the internet and in digital spaces. And yet with like, um, the, the places themselves being websites like Facebook, Twitter, social media, uh, for at least like the regular, you know, typical computer user. It's a lot of, um, like popular sites like that. And it's very hard increasingly to remember that there are alternative ways to design like the internet as a space that we interact with. Um, like we think of like the internet as this place where like we go to get mad at each other and get depressed that our lives aren't as good as <laughs> such and such persons. Um, but uh, something that I think is valuable in archiving um, and I guess to an extent kind of showcasing some of these um, different and older online platforms is that it shows us that um, there are ways to actually make different design changes that affect our time online. And that doesn't mean that we have to return exactly to like the old internet as it was in 1995 in, you know, 2002. Um, But it just, if anything, it just kind of reminds you that uh, we can make these changes that they are sort of, they, they, they feel like they're set concretely, but these are arbitrary design choices that, Uh, we as people can change to make the internet um, a more habitable place, I'll say. I actually want to ask a kind of follow-up because um, I really need to read this novel. I've read, I I am just getting back into reading um, sci-fi and um, cyberpunk was kind of one of the first things I started with the beginning of this year. And I have not read Snow Crash yet, but I've read like a lot of Gibson, um, a lot of the uh, the sprawl, um, not all of them, but the sprawl novels. And um, I kind of want to ask about cyberpunk, right? And sort of the 
inspirations for these virtual worlds, right? I think Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson, I think 1993, 1994, uh, late, like, not a late, not late cyberpunk novel, but it wasn't during the height of the movement, which was in the 80s, yeah, right? Um, right? So uh, in Snow Crash, from what I know of it, uh, Neil Stevenson is the first person to introduce, one of the first people at least, to introduce the idea of the metaverse, which uh, Facebook has co-opted, uh, which we can yeah. talk, about, uh, talk about that as well. But... What what interested me about cyberpunk um, initially, despite uh, aside from the fact that it was sort of this, uh, I mean, it was a critique. There was an anti, if not anti-capitalist, at least anti-elitist critique, right, um, of technology and of politics as well. But the representation of the internet, right, um, or of cyberspace, right, or of the metaverse, right, um, Neil Stevenson's uh, depiction, um, sort of these gridded geometries. Like, if anyone's read any of the sprawl novels or any of the short stories in Burning Chrome. I mean, he describes it as, as these beautiful geometric shapes and this kind of expansive gridded universe, you know? Um, I mean, Tron, right? And I mean, I guess like, you know, as I, as I, as I, in the nineties, as technology progressed a little more and ideas about the future and how we'd interact with um, technology progressed more, it would always be like, you would be an avatar, right? You would project your digital self, right? Um, out into the cyber world. And we could talk about the metaverse and how those things haven't panned out. But I guess the question is, how do you guys reconcile or how do you think rather that these 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 depictions of early cyberspace influenced not just the the evangelists, you guys say, who are promoting, right? Um, I mean, I'm going to call them like future hustlers, right? But they mm -hmm. were genuinely really believed in this stuff, right? The promise of the internet. But how do you also reconcile that with like, I mean, how things ended up turning out, right? Because cyberpunk started as a movement, right? With this critique and then became a genre in and of itself that's made billion, mil, bill, mil, I mean, billions, if not mil, millions, if not billions of dollars, right? So mm -hmm. how do you guys like kind of reconcile that? You know, I don't know if that's a long question, but I mean, that's an interesting one. I think um, you've definitely hit the nail on the head. Like Snow Crash was a huge influence. And a lot of the people that were working on early virtual worlds, especially, were just like, they just wanted to make Snow Crash real, essentially. Like the 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 metaverse as depicted in the snow in Snow Crash of like this uh the internet is not just like websites, it's not just like static pages of text. It's like a place that you can travel through with your avatar, right? So that book, even though that book is like a parody of cyberpunk in a way, and it's also like a dystopia, and there are negatives of the metaverse in Snow Crash, right? People still were very um, entranced by this idea, like very excited by it and thinking like, this is something that we might actually be able to make, right? So um, that was a big influence, I think, on a lot of the, you know, pioneers or whatever, the the early like designers and developers of virtual worlds. They definitely thought that they could, they thought that cyberspace, or at least some of them thought cyberspace would like overtake uh, the traditional internet. They thought you're not going to be on websites. You're going to be like your whole internet you're experience. You're going to be in gonna websites. Be, yeah. yeah, you're going to be in websites. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um so, yeah, how did we get from there to here? I mean, like, one thing that's clear is that um, virtual worlds have a lot to offer. It's very cool technology. There's a lot of good that has come out of it and a lot of interesting things you can do with it. But it's never going to be the whole Internet because for a number of reasons. I mean, one of them is just, like, 
it's difficult to like control a body in a virtual world and it requires like bigger like computing hardware certain interfaces it's the same reason why vr is cumbersome right and this comes mm -hmm. up a lot in our in our fourth episode of this season about active worlds it's like it's just more like difficult takes more effort and energy to like control yourself in a 3d space and for that Mental reason and emotional as well i mean yeah you know, yeah yeah. yeah, definitely. So it's not going to work for every application, like every potential use, you know. So it's for that reason alone, I think it, it would never actually overtake the static uh, Internet. But, um, you know, I think a big part of this is like it's clear from the research we've done and the archival footage we've seen and the people we've talked with that the people who most of the people who were involved in developing early virtual worlds and the early Internet in general were like pretty idealistic, really believed in the potential for the technology, had sort of a utopian bent that, um, you know, some of them were probably pretty naive, like about like the eventual uh, place that things would go. Some of them weren't naive, but they thought we can still like on the whole do good with this. Um, but the money moved in pretty quickly, right? I mean, like it became huge business, like the amount of uh, capital that poured into early virtual worlds was just like wild. I mean, like the uh, first like all online, like virtual world conference that we depicted in the active worlds episode, you can see like a Boeing table inside of it, you know, like, I mean, there was like big business already. So, I mean, that's part of it, right? The corrupting influence of, of just capital. But why do you think they, uh, I, that's interesting. Like, why do you think they were spending so much money already in terms of like these virtual worlds? Like from well, the jump. One thing is, I mean, the reason you might have seen Boeing in there and probably some other defense contractors was uh, military applications of being able to mm. model 3D spaces and run simulations of like test flights and stuff like that. God uh, damn it. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, a lot of military interest. I mean, even uh, the ARPANET was developed by like the Department of Defense in the US. Like the internet in its, in its earliest stages has like a lot of military uh, involvement. Um, so that's part of it. I think, um, there's just the general like technology hype that you always see, like the, the Silicon Valley hype cycle that seems to always arise around like new technology. Yeah. And you see it now, like with technology that is not nearly as interesting or valuable as virtual worlds. Like, I mean, around like fucking Bitcoin and like, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, large language models and shit like that. That's probably going to like on the whole be more negative than positive for humanity, or at least with the current regimes in place, you know? Um, yeah. I don't know. Mitchell, do you want to speak on this? I mean, I think you mostly hit the nail on the head. Um, I was just thinking it's not really an answer to the <laughs> initial question, but it, it does. Um, it, it almost makes too much sense in a way that like when it comes to, the old cyberpunk novels and like being in the internet, being in websites. Um, it's like a lot of that, A, I would say, um, was largely used obviously by these authors as literary device, you know, it becomes a more interesting thing to write about um, and can be used as sort of an allegory to, um, you know, sort of more human themes than like, then he went to the computer and typed in, you know, google.com. Um, but you know, it, it did create all these cool things that um, then later, like fans of sci-fi read and decided like, oh, we should make this like a reality. Um, but, you know, the way it panned out, you know, I largely as um, Derek was just talking about, like the practicality of having um, a 3D avatar that you're trying to control 
uh, versus um, just like a flat 2D interface just happens to be an incredibly efficient way to uh, use, manipulate, and share information. So, um, you know, everything that you can do on your smartphone uh, is like, in, in many applications, just more useful. So the, the cool 3D, you know, cyberpunk stuff um, didn't necessarily pan out. Uh, although a lot of the stuff that those um, authors were talking about, the themes of like uh, human greed and corruption um, and these large corporate or elitist organizations, um, you know, gathering and seizing power in places, um, that stuff does seem to be panning out. So. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, Increase yeah. in, yeah, consolidation of large corporations, decrease in government power in comparison to the corporations, all that kind of yeah. movement seems to still be on track. It's really good. Exactly. Good I guess I should also say, like, fiction, I, right? I'm not an economist or anything, so I might be getting a little out of my comfort zone. But in terms of, like, why capital was so interested in the Internet, I mean, there's also, like, factors like... Um, seeing it as like a new frontier for capital to like move into like here's a whole new like realm for like you know trade and moving like assets around and shit like that um sort of like globally connecting markets much more quickly like and easily like i think there was probably a lot there for uh capitalists to uh get pretty excited about yeah so i want to ask a follow-up actually and um and you're in the episode on Monday. Um, and I don't want you guys to talk too much in the interview. The person you interviewed, Bruce Damer, I think it's the last Damer's pronounced. I'm pronouncing that right. It was a yeah, Damer. Damer, 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 Damer from okay. the uh, Active World episode. From yeah. the Active World episode. Right, yeah. Right, um, right. I don't want you guys to explain, re-explain in his um in his words. Um, I'll let people watch the episode, but more so your own thoughts on it. Um, he talks a lot about the dem- democratization, right, of these virtual worlds, and um, I really enjoyed that episode because it really seemed like he did believe, not only did believe in this sort of utopian vision, this democratic vision of the internet, but still also holds critiques, right? As Mm -hmm. to why it hasn't panned out. And I kind of want to talk more about the social relations, right? Because we know the economic basis for that, right? But um, for anyone, I mean, for anyone who's on Twitter, like myself, right? And I wouldn't call Twitter a community, but I mean... I mean, this is, I mean, this is how I know Jorge, right? This is how I know you guys, right? It absolutely right. is a community. And I know that the times when I've um, uh, uh, kind of uh, retreated into escapism, especially with online communities, it's when I felt depressed, when I felt alone. And I mean, it you know, it sounds cheesy and corny to say, but um, despite the fact that uh, the, the, the cyberpunk uh, novelists, the, their most dystopian visions, right? Not the really cool ones, because it's not like we have cybernetic arms or anything. Instead, we have like <laughs> electric cars that like blow up on you and shit. But more, more, more like more likely it panned out. Um, it really did pan out to be um to 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 not not work out so great. But one of the things though that um that I really appreciate about cyberpunk is that there is this sense of community, right? There is a sense of I'm thinking of like um like the low techs, right? I think I think it's what they're called in Gibson's novels, right? There are these like groups of people that are um that are low tech, but they kind of meld like technology, but also this sort of like really urbane, like urban lifestyle, but it's a community, right? I think about um series of characters, right? Who are all sorts of like, you know, gangsters and hustlers and like, you know, uh, 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 like um, um, cowboys, I guess they're hackers and stuff, right? But there is a sense of a shared common, if, it, if it's even to survive, right? Or to fight the system, right? Um, and I do like that about these virtual online worlds, but 
what is it? I guess I'm kind of like hinting towards implying, but I guess we get, once you guys expand it, what is it about VR and online communities that, because I have a few ideas, right? But what is it that these companies can't get right besides like the profit motive? But what is it about the sticky social relations of it that keeps people either not coming back or leaving, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a million dollar question in a way, right? But um, it's, I mean, I think that is something we're definitely exploring with the series. I mean, essentially like, a virtual world is like another way of envisioning like human communication over a distance. Right. And it's um, interesting. It's different from like a phone call or something because you're embodied. Right. But you're not embodied in the sense that you're on a video. You're embodied because you have this avatar in a 3D space. Your avatar can move around and be close to other avatars and such. Um and, you know, there are different affordances given to you uh, as a player of these games. Like your avatar can do different things in different games. You can. Some games have voice chat. Some don't. Some are text only, right? Some are like gestures only. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely like a million things that go into like what it's like to talk to people in one of these virtual worlds. And you've got a pretty wide range through our series of um, different ways of approaching that. And uh yeah, what makes it stick and what doesn't? I mean, obviously, like if something is heavily monetized, like to the point that, like I think Second Life is an instructive example. Um, in Second Life, you can create your own space, and that is right. something that is sticky, right? Like that's something that's good. If a user can make their own space, hang out in it, bring other people into it, that'll keep people coming back, feel a sense of ownership, and be able to be creative. You're not like stuck with the the basic like restricted like thing that the developer first like put on the screen. Right. You're able to make your own thing. That's good, but where Second Life goes wrong is that um, they monetize things so hard, like they're rent seeking. Like when you yeah. create your own space in Second Life, you got to pay rent to keep it online. And if you stop paying rent monthly, <laughs> the place goes offline. And it's like, what because of that, <laughs> this stuff goes offline constantly. And it's like... But also too, real quick though, too, I thought this was weird. Like, because like um, people can sell products, virtual products that are based on actually existing IP. Yeah. But because like, I guess the creators of Second Life, they don't want to, you know, they don't want to piss anyone off by, you know, like taking these items away because of copyright issues. So there's that tension. And this is kind of a question I guess want to ask, like, this is like based on like an existing real world economic system in a virtual world where you could fucking do anything. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there yeah. still exists that tension there where people are like, no, nah, I'm going to fucking skirt the system anyway, you know? <laughs> it does drive me crazy to think about sometimes just the fact that, like you said, you could do any kind of economic system in one of these games. But of course, they're just reproducing capitalism because that's how you get your like money output out of it. Yeah. Right. But um, but it is like a, an interesting thing, I think, for a leftist also with virtual worlds is to think about like you really could do like um experiments in like different types of economy, right? Like you could run little planned economies, see how it goes. It's not going to be like one-to-one -one with the real world for many obvious reasons, but you can like get into specifics like and, and test certain things out. And like, yeah, it, it allows you to like kind of think about alter alternatives in a way. I don't know. Absolutely. And I would say like the two things that I always think of with this series that we're trying to examine are like those that that theme of design and how design decisions do um, affect like outcomes in that sense. Like it affects um, the kinds of people that exist in these spaces and, and the ways that they interact with the space and with each other. 
Uh, and you even see that in like um, our episode on Meridian 59, uh, this kind of World of Warcraft type predecessor MMO um, RPG, where because of the design decisions, namely that uh, they didn't have a lot of single player content, they leaned more heavily into um, player versus player sort of content. And then the result is a lot of like cloak and dagger, espionage, betrayal, just like really brutal uh, <laughs> player interaction, like true like barbarism online, um, you know, versus games like Forcadia, which we also recently covered um, that, you know, through the way that the world is designed, uh, produces much more friendly and social kind of um, environments and interactions. Um, and besides the theme of design, the other theme is um, definitely for us community uh, in my mind. So, you know, it's, uh, it is that central question of what kinds of people are using these online spaces um, and what uh, goes into these online communities that allows them to be more successful or not. Um, with the episode that's coming out tomorrow, or I guess today, if you're listening on Monday, um, I think, you know, it, it, it's a great example of we interview um, someone. It, it, it's different from our other episodes where we're focusing on a single platform or environment. And it's more of a case study of one user where we kind of go through their progression of um, different online games, online worlds that they've been a part of. Um, to the point where now in Final Fantasy XIV, uh, they've really been the catalyst for fostering a really positive, really meaningful community um, that's benefited its users, um, not just within the game of like, oh, now I have a bunch of people that I can do all the dungeon raids with, um, but like, you know, people making long-lasting uh, life-impacting uh, friendships and relationships. Um, and if I had to pin it down, I think part of it is, um, like part of it is definitely just like putting in the work. Um, it's about like certain users, like really trying to put in the extra effort to meet people and to establish and um, really forge uh, relationships with others. Um, and, you know, doing what they can to foster an open environment. It's very similar, actually, to <laughs> the summer camp that I'm currently working at. We're, we're talking a lot, of course, about, like, creating open and, and loving sort of uh, communities um, that can be receiving of, um, you know, these kinds of friendships uh, can, can allow them to happen in a way. Um, but when it comes to the online stuff in particular, um, something that we've actually seen quite a lot of is a sort of combination of synchronous and asynchronous interaction. I don't know how many people uh, outside of um, like college environments are <laughs> used to these terms, but um, I guess background, I'm an adjunct professor and uh, since COVID now these terms synchronous and asynchronous I hear all the time. Um, but to summarize, uh, there is a sort of synchronous um, place where there is that one-to-one -one interaction with the avatars. There's physical presence and everybody is together at the same time. Um, but in addition to that, uh, we've often found with a lot of these communities that are really successful, 
there's uh, that is sort of insufficient on its own, um, and there needs to be some sort of asynchronous um, community setup, which could be like a Discord channel or a mailing list or or some other thing where just people are able to keep in touch without having to literally sit at their computer twenty four seven. You don't all have um, to be at the same place in the same time in the same game. You can like go and send a message that someone's going to see in eight hours on the Discord or whatever. Yeah, ex- exactly. And that also allows for them to more efficiently, you know, plan like, hey, let's all get online like Friday at the same time, and we're going to go clubbing or we're going to have like a fashion show. Melding into like meat space and sort of like the virtual space. Well, not really, I guess, but it's a bleed mm-hmm. over. It's not just concentrated into this one world, you know? Right. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and yeah, and it allows the the times that you do get online to be that much more impactful rather than like, uh, without that, you're just kind of like rolling the dice every time you log in and you're like, well, maybe two or three people are online or maybe nobody is, or maybe there's a hundred of my friends are online. I don't know. Um, but you have some sort of way of um, being organized in that sense. Um, and uh that, that, that's, I guess, uh, in summary, that, that's something that I've noticed in a lot of these. I just, can I just add something really quick to really quick? I just wanted to say, um, uh, just a comment. One thing um, that I appreciate that you guys talked about, um, especially when you're talking about MMOs, um, uh, uh, like Gemstone or like Final Fantasy 16, uh, 14, um, is that there's, there's no punishment for not playing. You know, and like, I think as a, I, I'm not a gamer anymore because I don't own a system. I feel like, like, I even hesitate to call myself a writer because I'm like, I'm not really writing. I can't call myself a gamer. I don't own a fucking system, but I feel like I have the spirit of a gamer though. Um, But the kind of reason why I kind of stopped playing was because like, that's why I like Final Fantasy. I like, I'm sorry, Breath of the Wild. You know, I haven't played the new one yet, but that game is like, you don't have to do, you don't have to play the game straight through. You don't have to do the objectives. You can do whatever you want. And I feel like um, you guys touching upon it made me want to play Final Fantasy 14 because I don't I don't want to play games that stress me out. I don't want it to be like work, you know, and a lot of people for some reason now I'm not no hate on Dark Souls or nothing like that. But I feel like those are one of those games that are yeah. so incredibly difficult and people like that, maybe. But sometimes I just want to chill and I don't want to feel especially like punished, like by the company, even not financially, but I paid for the game and I'm losing access to certain features because I haven't played for a while, you know? So I don't know. I just yeah. wanted to point that out that I think that's also a not making people feel like they're chained to the game, you know? Yeah, that's totally. huge. I think um, a lot of massively multiplayer online RPGs in particular have that problem where they're like over aggressively designed, like force people to keep playing or lose yeah. their shit essentially, or like in order to like be, like in order to get the full experience of the game you need to devote in intense amounts of time and dedication and uh yeah you know i never really played any of those mmorpgs until working on this series and uh final fantasy 14 was the first one i really got into while working on the series like uh, most of the stuff we covered like either i've played a little bit of it in the past but never got super into it you know and then we did a lot of research and talked to people who were super into it with final fantasy 14 i uh actually just straight up like got super into it i've almost finished the last expansion which if uh, anyone listening who's played that game you know that that's an insane time commitment <laughs> but um but it's fun it's a good game i don't know and it, i think it is true that it doesn't really uh it doesn't feel exploitative or manipulative the way a lot of games like that sometimes can. Yeah. I so glad you brought up final fantasy 14. Um, (laughs) do you play? So I don't play, but I'm a 
massive fan. So this is my first time coming out of a gamer to my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome here, Jorge. I accept you. Uh, but point is, I, I, I have played so many of the Final Fantasy games growing up. Been a huge fan. Uh, Final Fantasy 4, Final 6, 7, 10, 13. Like, but I've never played the MMORPG. And I think what's interesting, what we're kind of talking about that kind of game form and the, and the, some of the limitations of the way that it kind of run, because like, if you're not always there and you're not actively always playing, then, it, then like Aaron said, the company, not just like, not just Square Enix, but all other companies like Blizzard, whatever, like all the, all these big MMORPG companies will try to get more out of, out of you as much as they possibly can. And so mm-hmm. you're not able, so, that's like what I found interesting is that I never wanted to play 14 mostly because of that, but I've always have had a curiosity because I've been always been a Final Fantasy fan. So I guess what I'm kind of wondering is like, why, why do you think that the communities, like, I, you know, Mitch, you talked about it a little bit, but it's like, why do you think that the community ended up developing in that way despite these? predatory practices that companies kind of do to make people keep playing. Yeah. Well, I think with final fantasy 14, there's a lot of different reasons. Like, um, a lot of MMOs are, uh, based on like very much about like rare loot drops or whatever. Like, um, when you beat a monster, you beat this specific monster, you have like a fucking 0.5% chance of getting this special sword or whatever. And then like, you have like, everyone wants to get the special sword. And so you dedicate like enormous amounts of time to try and get that sword. It's like a kind of gambling kind of vibe, you know? And um, Final Fantasy 14 doesn't really do that. I mean, there's like stuff where you beat a dungeon, there's like a certain set of items you could get, but like, it's not, it's never like a 1% kind of thing. It's like you run the dungeon three or four times, probably going to get the thing you're looking for. Um, There's a lot of attention paid, I think, in that game to fostering a positive uh, community, just like the way the incentive structures are set up. You're never really like incentivized to get at each other's throats or like be mean to each other or whatever. The incentives are really stacked in favor of a more positive type of interaction. Um, So that's part of it. Um, the game's not super like misogynist or like racist or whatever, the way that like some MMOs kind of are like, I mean, especially misogyny, like the characters in a lot of MMOs, like are like just the women are just the way they're designed. It's like, I, I really... think Pukia, Pukia, um, the, the, um, which I, I love that person. I really, I really enjoyed that. Uh, that they're the best. I love yeah, it was really, like, I really wanted to meet them. I was like, I want to meet this person. I want to be their friend. But, um, I think Pukia had said, um, they said that um the women are just dripping, you know. Yeah. Just use a really good adjective like that. I was like, yes, this is exactly. It's very pornographic, you know. Yeah, totally. Like, uh, yeah, and we showed in the episode a couple of uh, covers of EverQuest and expansions of EverQuest. <laughs> yeah, that, like, yeah, yeah. the art is so bad. Also, <laughs> just like, how does that costume work? Like, just like as a piece of clothing or fabric, you know? Like, it's just insane. yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Final Fantasy 14 doesn't have that problem. And that like is one of the reasons why it's very welcoming also to like, th- not just the standard like, uh, like stereotypical gamer demographic of like angry young white men or whatever, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> um, so like, there's a lot of like, it's also a very like queer friendly like community and like mm-hmm. just game like in the whole vibe of it and the way people behave and everything like our episode like covered like basically a, a queer community in final fantasy 14 that 
was super supportive and um butts right but butts is yeah they're name? called butts <laughs> of called Aorzea. Butts. Yeah. yeah yeah it's like a guild or a, in the game they call it like a free company is basically free what company. a final fantasy 14 guild is called yeah. and um it is nice that the game has built in like systems for player organization like that as well um and gives you a lot of ownership over your organization um yeah i don't know i mean i think it's worth mentioning too that like speaking of queer community that virtual worlds can be very nice for that because right you know a lot of queer people grow up um in like towns where there's not like a visible queer community and it's hard to find people that are like you and that can relate to you in that in that kind of part of life right and um Sometimes you're dealing with a lot of discrimination locally, and sometimes you're alienated from your peers and even from your family. Absolutely. And uh, the internet in general and virtual worlds too can be a really nice way to like be able to connect with people uh, outside of like your area that share your interests or your identity. So, I, I, and I'm, that's definitely a big part of that episode. I'm just so happy you said that because um. You know, like, uh, I think it was like until last year, like I kind of came out with my own like queer identity. And it's like, it's not, on, it's only because like I moved to Atlanta, right? Which is like one of the queerest cities in the yeah. world, right? And, you know, listening, especially with the episode um with Pukia talking about Final Fantasy fourteen, And I, I guess kind of like, I just guess I went to Guru's guys' thoughts on this too, because I was just surprised. I mean, I guess I wasn't really surprised because I feel like the, 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 the nugget, the, the, the truth, the nugget of truth that the internet um, can be this truly open space, you know, where people are allowed to be themselves. I think there is, that is true, right? Because you can mm -hmm. find as disgusting as the internet is, as disgusting as Twitter is right now, especially, but the internet writ large, there are pockets all over the internet and communities, right, that are affirming and supportive, right? Mm -hmm. um, and shout out to those communities. But I mean, like, I even used to make jokes about it, about it, man. When I would get on Xbox Live, when I had an Xbox, I mean, like, I'd have some little white kid in, like, Kansas calling me a slur within, like, yeah. the first five minutes of logging on, man. And that's just, like, I mean, if you are, like, a marginalized person, you know, if you're a queer person, if you're a person of color, if you're, like, a femme online, I mean, it is, like, it is just walking through, like, a minefield, right? For sure. You know, For so sure. I was just really just, like, surprised and kind of happy. And also, again, maybe you want to play Final Fantasy XIV, that that space exists online. And I, I guess like, I guess I kind of want to ask this question too. Um, I, I don't know if you guys have the answers. I don't have the answers to this too, but what do you, how can I put it? I guess it's a two part question. Why do, why do you, why do you think that that right wing culture has kind of really, I mean, there's probably an obvious reason for that, but I'm going to ask you guys, why do you think it's seeped into these online spaces so much? Perhaps not maybe these virtual worlds, but as kind of a parallel, right? I think um, um online communities as well. Right. And do you think that there can exist like a space, like a true left, like queer positive space? Is this a good, is Final Fantasy XIV a good example of that or a sort of model for that going forward? Or is that even possible? Or should we just say, fuck it, let's log off because the Nazis are trying to kill us all, you know? Well, I do um, think that um, Final Fantasy XIV is a good example of a like pretty queer friendly game in general. Uh, I mean, there's surely like, you know, bigoted people in there too, but um in general, the culture seems to be more positive on average that, like, than a lot of other games. Um, and, you know, if you find your right community within that game, too, then you can really be set. Um, in terms of, like, why things have gotten to this point with video game culture, it's, I mean, you're right, it's terrible. Video game, mainstream video game culture is a cesspit, like, awful. Um, 
You know, I think there's probably a lot of reasons and it's hard to point fingers at just one, but I, I always think about how, um, like video game culture, the way video games were marketed from the jump, like has almost always been like historically very much aimed at like teenage boys. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that comes from the marketing more than anything. I mean, like if you look at the history of computing, like early computer programmers were mostly women. Like it started out as a women dominated Mm -hmm. profession. And, uh, for whatever reason, like, and I'm not enough of a historian of that particular aspect of like the computer history to tell you exactly why, but at some point, like it became a male dominated profession and, uh, also just marketing around computers, computer technology, the internet and video games tended to be like the marketers thought this is a male demographic like kind of thing. And um, a lot of the early like video game magazine culture in the nineties, like awful shit, like incredibly misogynistic. Tr- and, like, truly, like, truly. I could probably yeah. go in my garage and pick out some of those magazines, man. Like truly, it's really bad, man. Yeah. yeah like bikini <laughs> models selling Game Boys and stuff. Um, yeah. And I'm like, I'm like yeah. 12 years old, man. Also trying to figure out my own sexual identity. I'm like, dude, I just want to fucking play Pokemon, man. What the yeah, fuck is- exactly. Yeah. You, you, I, you. I, I was thinking exactly of that same thing, Derek. And um, I think that it might be an apocryphal story, but I'm pretty sure it's true, which is um, there was the sort of like crash of all of the arcade game systems in the mid 80s. Um, and people thought like the video game industry was going to completely die until the, you know, NES, Nintendo came in uh, and uh, revitalized things with the home uh, video game consoles. And the story that I've heard, at least, is that um, toy companies were asking Nintendo, like, well, which aisle do you want this uh, video game console thing to be sold, this NES um, do you want it in like the boys' toys or the girls' toys aisle? And Nintendo was like, "Oh, I guess the boys." <laughs> and I, I think it was like one of those things, right? Um, and I'm sure it was not just that, of course, but there's like a lot of little things, and it is the marketing, but it's also just like the um, cultural context, um, just like the, the sort of racist patri- mm-hmm. patriarchal uh, <laughs> society. Uh, that we've wrought, like the technology itself, obviously, is not inherently um, gendered or racialized in any way. It's just the world that it comes out of um, kind of being reflected back. Um, and in this case, it's it feels like with video games, it's kind of become, you know, one of those self-fulfilling prophecies, uh, almost like an echo chamber of like the worse it gets, the worse it gets. Yeah with that stuff um i think also like a lot of video games are like just a thing that you can sit in front of your tv by yourself and put like 60 or 100 hours into completely by yourself and never talk to anybody and uh so it it is i think that's naturally appealing to someone who is super alienated maybe doesn't have a lot of relationships in their life or um you know it's Mm. like you could imagine like someone who just like is very poorly socialized. Like it's obviously not everybody who gets into video games is like super poorly socialized, but it is a friendly space for someone who is right. And so you could also see that bleeding into the mainstream of video game culture too. You mentioned this is, Oh, sorry. Oh, um, I just wanted to get a chance to talk about this. You mentioned both of you earlier about the history of, of like gaming in terms of, it becoming a male dominated thing. And, you know, Derek, you mentioned really important point about that 
a lot of the programmers that there were early on were, were women. I actually do know a little bit about the history. Um, basically, for a long time, mathematicians would kind of act more like kind of a like overseers of projects, as kind of many research projects are nowadays too. But an important aspect is that uh, when they started becoming applied math- mathematics with the rise of computing, uh, peop- or at least bi- slightly before then, before computers were used everywhere, but uh, in terms of actually computing uh, the, act- the, the applied equations or formulas, what have you, to various scenarios, there would be a team of people that would, compute them like the name for them were literally computers that's where computers come from and there were a lot of people typically they were trained in mathematics but for some reason are working as kind of like almost like the, the proletariat of the research project in terms of and historically usually with women yeah. like women who were trained in mathematics a- but and yet, that's that they were black women actually who were doing the actual computational like calculations you know right. of, uh, hidden figures if anyone knows that sorry Jorge. yeah yeah no yeah no no it's like it's like it was like Breed broadly women, but also within that, there's also kind of like Aaron mentioned, like predominantly was women of color who were occupying that role. So then it, they, when computers started becoming adopted, particularly around like the Apollo space program, they were starting to become bigger. But then once things like that showed the potential of this new technology, mm. like really now there's things to show for it. Now capital comes in and now it's like the structures of society broadly are kind of now re- being reproduced. That's yo. That's yeah. such a good point, actually, and it reminds me of. It's such a good point, man. It reminds me of this quote, um, because I wrote it down because it was so. This blew my mind. Uh, Bruce, Bruce Damer brought up this um analogy. Um, I'm gonna pull it up really quick because I I was like, yo, this is this is insane. So he talks about the colorful scales of ancient serpents, right? Um, yes. I guess like a couple <laughs> of like tens of thousands of years ago, right? That our early ancestors, right, um, had to contend with. And he says that, um, you know, like most most poisonous animals, they're brightly colored. Right. And he says that he compares like our he compares like the Internet. Right. As sort of this shiny object to this colorful snake. Right. That is um, that elucidates you, that entrances you, that mesmerizes you. He calls it a mesmer. But if you're not careful enough, you get your ass bit. Right. And like that was like such a good analogy because it really made me think about like. Because, right, Jorge is talking about, like, you know, the fact that, like, once, like, this technology, right, was not only developed, but developed within the system, right, that have these, um, these, this, this social, like, hierarchy and system, you know, and the system of extraction. I mean, yeah, they ended up putting these women out of work, right? And not only just putting them out of work, but also relegate them, right, to, I mean, they were already relegated to a second-class citizen status, but even more so within the field that they had been pioneers in, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I just feel like... I guess this is kind of a follow-up question that too. Like, where do you, where do you guys see like you know um, now that we know the metaverse? I, I should have looked it up, but how many billions of dollars had been dumped into it? Um, we know that shit's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what other like tech platforms have I. I know Apple. Apple just released their um, um, Vision Pro. Yeah, the VR thing, headset. Yeah. yeah, the VR headset. Where where do you guys because. I'm not I'm not opposed to technology at all, but I am kind of a Luddite in the sense where, where the original Luddites were like, okay, we're not opposed to technology itself, but we're opposed to it being owned by the means of production that are exploiting us, you know? Um, and this shit is scary, man. Like, you know, on the one hand, I do want to live in the Star Trek future, and I'm not going to lie to you, like, they're part of that, like, I don't want to call myself a futurist because those are, like, fascist connotations, but as a person who's future, future-minded, right, um, I was looking at the Vision Pro, and I kind of 
I got sucked in for a minute. I was like, yo, this is like, if Apple does it, right? And this is kind of the thing with Apple, right? If they do it, yeah. they innovate it, then everyone's going to adopt it. But I don't know, man. This shit is getting bad. Do you guys see, I guess, a future for virtual worlds that harkens back to like, the, what, like a lot of what you guys cover in the documentary, as opposed to like, you know, um, this person, this woman brings it up in the, um, I don't want to ruin this for people. People should, this will already be out. This episode should already be out by the time um, people get to watch um, the latest episode. But there's another amazing um, quote that this woman at the end of that episode says where she says that, why are we creating these virtual worlds, right? And I think this is at an Avatars conference or something like that, right? Yeah, um, it was at a like 1996 conference, I think. Yeah, 1996 conference, right? And she says that, well, you know, we've destroyed the natural world. We've alienated ourselves from the natural world. And more increasingly, I'm like, yeah, man, like, the metaverse, I mean, I guess this is where uh, Neil Stevenson gets into Snow Crash, right? It's sort of escapism from maybe the real world. Like, instead of dealing with the frightening contradictions of the real world and this hellscape, I can just, like, go online. I mean, Ready Player One, I guess, does this, right? But, like, where do you guys see this stuff heading? Because on the one hand, it does I thought that this shit was, like, just cooked. And then Apple releases this Vision Pro thing, you know? Right. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I like to be, I, I also sort of think of myself as like interested in the future of technology, you know, without, uh, you know, yeah, it's true. The futurists, unfortunately, were fascists in Italy, right? But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I am very skeptical that something like Meta will ever take off. Like, I don't think we're heading to a future where there is like one big broad metaverse that like everybody's in. We're not, in my opinion, I don't think we're heading for the ready player one future. I just think like, like I was saying earlier, like the technology is just too difficult to use. Like the headset is cumbersome, like controlling your avatar in a 3d space, like simulation sickness from the headsets. I mean, like, I I have the PlayStation VR that that headset from like five years ago, and uh, that thing is um, it makes me so sick. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have a term for it now. It's like VR sickness, right? Yeah, yeah, simulation sickness. Simulation yeah. sickness. Yeah, you just said it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. especially if there's um, a lot of motion. Like, I I tried to play a racing game where you're oh, like no. in this futuristic hover car thing, and I was sick the entire rest of the day. <laughs> like, you can get better at it. Like, if you train like if you wear this thing like often enough you can like slowly ramp up the intensity they i think people who are really into vr have like a little term for it i forget what it is but it's like getting your vr legs like getting your sea legs <laughs> getting your sea oh, legs no. okay. yeah yeah um but like i mean like the whole world's not going to be doing that shit like i don't yeah, no. see it happening it's just too cumbersome i mean I guess if like capital is invested enough and is like, you know, you can end up forced to use whatever technology if you have to do it for your job or whatever. But it just seems to me like it just doesn't seem like a good enough user interface for a wide enough array of like activities that it's ever going to take over like and replace the Internet or whatever. I just don't see it. Um, but, you know, I'm sure we'll see interesting virtual world projects. I think um, one thing that uh, so you guys haven't seen the final episode of uh, season two because we're still working on it. Um, there's, it's almost done, but um, that one is about DIY virtual worlds. It's about uh, virtual Ooh. worlds that like one person or a small group of people can put together with minimal resources. And um, it's still right now in general, you need some, some programming skills, but you don't need like a team of programmers. Like if mm. one person at this stage 
can, without putting in like months of effort, just putting in like a week or less of effort at this stage, you can get a little online 2D space that you and your friends can hang out in going and Mm. run it yourself and host it for not that much money either. It'll cost some money probably, but we're talking maybe like $10 a month or something, depending on like what you're doing. So um, the technology is at the stage now where you can put together little, like, not like, you know, you're not gonna have a 200 people in this thing, but a little, like, small, like, uh, virtual world for you and your friends, and maybe you organize on Discord, like we were talking about earlier, and it's like, mm-hmm. let's all go in this little uh, space, this browser game thing that I built, and we can watch a movie with a little YouTube embed and have our little avatars and watch a movie together, right? So that, I think, is an interesting pathway for the future. We might see people running little personal virtual worlds that, you know, you can get the advantage of um, having that embodied, like we're all in a space type of experience, which has its own advantages. I mean, like, for example, one thing in that episode that um, one of our guests talks about is you are all in this space together and maybe you are shy and you don't want to be talking and, uh, but you have your avatar and just being present, you can emote or whatever, like show that you're invested and enjoying mm. whatever's happening or whatever. You can be a presence like in that conversation without having to constantly show that you're there by constantly talking or typing, right? So mm. that's kind of interesting. Um, so there are advantages of virtual worlds or like cyberspace or whatever. And I think it might be very interesting to see if people are running their own little instances. You can control the the dynamics you can control the design of the space and not have some programmer at some big corporation like deciding like how your excuse me how your interactions are able to be accomplished by the way last year meta invested 13.7 billion dollars into the metaverse that and and plans to invest 19.2 billion dollars this year in the metaverse. So insane, man. I've heard that they're starting to uh, decrease their, um, I've heard that they're quietly decreasing their investment in it. Like I heard that like, basically it seems like they're kind of starting to feel like it's not going anywhere. Um, I I I kind of hope that's the case because I don't trust them. (laughs) I mean, this past quarterly report though, I mean, like Facebook publicly, like back in April, like they publicly said, we are still committed completely mm-hmm. to the metaverse so yeah. i think it's like either they're doing it very slowly and they're showing and they're not just like showing face or maybe they're just like no we're gonna just we're pivoting completely and try to really make it happen maybe i i like my prediction is i don't see it happening at least nowhere near the level that they are hyping up right i mean maybe no, no, I, agree, I agree but i think yeah. it's important to keep you know, keep an eye on it though you know totally. you know what it's like man it's like uh i think about this analogy and i think actually um Bruce Damer kind of um, highlighted this for me. Uh, did he co-found uh, the Contact Consortium? I think, yeah, yeah. He was the uh, yeah. he was the founder of the Contact Consortium. Yeah, a nonprofit yeah. dedicated to advancing virtual world technology. Yeah, yeah. but what, wasn't it? Well, what, what wasn't it first? Um, um, the extraterrestrial contact group that he was yeah. a part of, right? Yeah. So yeah. I thought I thought that was interesting because um, like uh, like Arthur C. Clarke, I think um, who's Arthur C. Clarke? I think he talks about um. Um, sort of exploring inner worlds as much as outer worlds, you know? And I think, like, new wave science fiction and cyberpunk mm-hmm. does this as well, right? Um, and it seems like... I don't know how to make this analogy, how to make this... I th- it seems like, sim- like, similarly with space colonization, right? Like, uh, plans of going to space and living on Mars. Like, I'm sorry, 
I love space. That shit is never going to happen. Yeah. Dog. Like literally <laughs> a bunch of scientists. I mean, I didn't know. I didn't need to read this, see the shit, but they were like, yeah, like we have to, have to deal with cosmic radiation and radiation from the sun. Like you can't live long term. Like it's just not going to happen unless we find a way to deal with that. But I mean, in the near future, the far future, probably not. Right. But it feels like the same sort of um snake oil with like VR, you know, like mm-hmm. like they've and also too like they have nothing else to colonize, you know. They've like colonized the entire world, right? Yeah. But now they have to colonize like hearts and minds and then space. You know what I mean? Totally. Um, so I just thought that was kind of interesting, like that now as well, uh, Bruce Damer is going into like the origins of life. Like it just seems to be like this thread, right? Of like finding life elsewhere where life doesn't exist, even on this own planet under capitalism. I don't know if any of that makes sense, you know? No, but it yeah. does. I mean, capitalism is always looking for a new frontier to colonize. It's true. It's, you're always looking for a new territory to transform social relations into capitalist social relations and like increase your market, right? So when the whole world is in the market, then where do you go next? Yeah, that's the question. And I feel like a lot of these like random hype cycles we're seeing out of Silicon Valley are just a lot of different like random going in a random direction and seeing if they can find a new frontier. So far, I don't think they're working out. Go off, Derek. It does make me think of like um, stories about like alchemists uh, trying to turn lead into gold. Is mm. I feel like that's the reason why you see like there's like that cognitive dissonance between um regular people you know understanding intuitively like yeah meta's never gonna happen um the the dissonance between that and silicon valley types um desperately trying to make it happen is because you know it's it's a physically impossible or maybe not physically impossible but there is like that logical disconnect of like people don't actually want to live in vr uh, the VR sickness, the the cumbersomeness of it. Um, but if they somehow manage to square the circle, if they manage to do the impossible and make it happen, um, then that is just another like 0.001 um, that this number is able to like go up a little bit more. You know, productivity of workers is able to go up just a little bit more. Uh, maybe people are able to do Excel spreadsheets while they're sitting on the toilet uh, seamlessly, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and it's it's a brutal way to live. Um, but in their minds, like if they're able to do it, um, that is one of the few ways that they can, um, you know, uh, get a little bit more of our time and a little bit more of our um, labor out of us. Um, and... Yeah, maybe in their minds they think thirty-two billion dollars uh, over a few years will do it, but I am skeptical. Yeah, one thing that you guys uh, was thinking about too that um um I really enjoyed. I, I don't want to ruin. I mean, people are going to watch that episode. It's not like this is going to be released tomorrow, so people are going to watch that um that sixth episode. But I really really enjoyed that one because I'm actually going to read um um his book as well, Avatars. But um he brings up to like standardization, you know, and like. I guess like that's the thing that I never really thought about either. And and this is where I guess like cyberpunk doesn't really, I mean, yeah, Gibson does talk about these competing companies, you know, cyber companies and whatnot, but it really feels like cyberspace is this like, again, gritty geometry that you can just kind of stroll through. And sure, there are gates of ice, you know, like walls of ice that prevent you. But like, if you have like the right, like, you know, access, you can get in. But yeah, it seems like if all these com- different companies are competing 
like for their, you know, their own kind of like metaverse or whatever, and it's not standardized. I also can't imagine being adopted, I guess is what I'm saying, right? Being re- accessible for people, you know? Yeah, yeah. Standardization's big. I mean, <laughs> speaking as a librarian, like that's something librarians are actually pretty good at, um, like library catalogs, being able to talk to each other, doing interlibrary loan where you can like transfer books between library systems pretty easily and seamlessly so that someone in uh, one city can like ask for a book and get it from like across the country given a few weeks right um and librarians were some of the first working in the space of like search engines and such but uh when you get to the point of like yeah when it's big companies doing this stuff like it's so rare to see like standards emerge like across like platforms and uh you know, I guess part of it is that they're all in competition and they don't really have the like financial incentive to develop a standard. But I mean, talking about like there was all that dumb hype about like crypto like a, f- a year or two ago where it's like, especially around NFTs, where it's like, if you buy your uh, item in a game, then you'll be able to take that item into every game, you know? And it's like, well, motherfucker, not unless you develop a standard for that. Like, exactly. Not exactly. unless every fucking game is on the same standard and the item can just transfer seamlessly. Otherwise, like, developers are going to have to develop the item in every game, right? So, like, that's not going to happen anytime soon. And um, I doubt it would happen with virtual worlds either. And it's like, like according to Bruce and I thought this was very interesting I didn't know this until we talked with him but there were actual like uh, conversations and sessions around standardizing like virtual worlds in the 90s when this Mm -hmm. technology was first emerging and uh, I guess it didn't like end up going anywhere that stuck unfortunately it it would be cool you know if every virtual world could talk to each other like that that might be neat but Mm -hmm. I don't see it happening anytime soon yeah, it, it reminds me when I was a kid and I was like, um, you know, why can't I play, you know, like um, this game, you know, for this system that I got with my friends who have the same game, but on a different system, you know? And then I'm like, well, of course, like, you know, they want me to pay for Xbox Live or they want me to pay for PlayStation Plus or whatever. But like, I don't know, it was just something in my mind that like, again, when I had these ideas, like out of cyberpunk and out of like the early ideas of the internet, like, I was like, yeah, man, this is like, this is like the real world, but it's just virtual, right? Like anywhere that I can go, but I guess that's not true because if I don't have enough money to take a trip to Paris, then I can't get there, you know? Mm -hmm. So I guess, yeah, I guess they really are again, replicating the real world. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For sure. Yeah. Um, I I guess uh, we're going to finish up soon, but I wanted to ask too, before, um, um, I want to make a comment first of all, because I didn't, um, we didn't really talk about the show itself in terms of its presentation. And um, I fucking love the way you guys put this together. I fucking love oh, the music. You. I fucking thank love, you. like Mitchell, I love the fucking music. Like both you guys, I love the fucking music. I love the graphics. I love the fact that like, you know, if you like, um, like I can read the text because you have like this, the, you have it pop, like it looks like an, like an interface from a game or something like that, right. you know what I mean? It looks awesome 100%. first of all, so kudos uh, to that. But um, um, just the production uh, quality, but um. Was there anything that you guys discovered or uncovered during your research or any revelations that you had that um, either changed your mind about something that you came into or just kind of shed light on something that you had probably not thought about before um, you got into uh, researching for this documentary? Sure. I'm going to let Mitchell say his, but before that, I want to say that um, the look of the series 
is both Mitchell and an illustrator that we've partnered with. An artist named uh, Bachelor Soft is the name that he works under. And uh, mm-hmm. he does really cool pixel art. And a lot of it is in the style of like Apple, like hypercard art from the mm-hmm. early 90s. Um, and yeah, he did all that little uh, portraits of all of the people that we're talking with and all that kind of stuff. And he designed the little windows that have the text in them and everything. So I just wanted to give him a shout out. I just want to give listeners to like, uh, I don't think I'm describing the vibe. I haven't really described the vibe. This is something that I feel like I've put it on in the background before, like the first season and like, like literally just let it kind of play. And it was like being like kind of subsumed, like, I don't know, in like a pool or something like that, man. Like just the sounds and the visuals. I mean, it's just, it's very relaxing to to watch it, to listen to. I guess is what I'm saying. That's awesome. Thank you. We, we, We do try to, yeah. Um, give our viewers like a, a nice like production value sort of like fully put together um, kind of show and and the music when it doesn't come from the games itself we do draw a lot from um, like vaporwave artists that were particularly um, you know fans of um, artists like Voyage Future uh, Eyeliner Graham Cartner who does our theme song oh yeah uh, oh, you're gonna have to send of... me some of these artists so I can tell totally. I want to know oh, yeah. these artists <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, the, oh yeah, the, the Graham Cartner stuff, especially is like great. Like when we were, uh, season one, um, Derek was talking about like, um, you know, we were talking about trying to figure out like a theme song and we wanted like something that was, um, you know, kind of fun, kind of sounded like retro internet, maybe a little irreverent and, um, just like playful, you know, just trying to give people, you know, it's, it's, it's a comfy, it's a fun vibe. It's not like a super serious um show in that sense um and one of the first artists that came to mind i was like oh i think <laughs> this guy might be great and i sent the song that we ended up using to Derek, and he's like yeah that's that's perfect <laughs> that's the one. Yes. yeah it's um, got that great like 90s edutainment software kind of sound to it you know <laughs> yeah yeah so you know thanks again uh Graham Carter. and all the artists that we've worked with have been really generous mm-hmm. um in, in sharing their tracks with us so we appreciate that i'm so glad you brought um, i'm so glad you brought up the music because uh uh, you know, Aaron and I have talked about this off the show, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a big electronic music fan. And I think listening should consider that if you're not really are aware of it, there is like a really interesting kind of thread of like a, uh, in terms of the avant-garde of, of electronic music where it's like self-referentially saying we're doing ontology. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's Absolutely. really interesting. Like, oh, yeah. like the, you mentioned like Vaporwave, but also there's also other, like there's like a, there's like Soviet retro kind of like remembrance of like literally some of these are like lost futures, lost dreams kind of perspective. But also it was like, uh, I think about it in some forms of ambient music too is like that. It's really interesting to observe at what was kind of manifested. Uh, I think yeah. the thing I was thinking of was Soviet wave. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and, and, absolutely. And, and I want to let you guys answer because, um, but I want to know, but I also have to say too, you just reminded me who I used the word. Um, it's, this is a hauntological show. That's probably why I like it a lot too. Yeah, I would say <laughs> so. It's a hauntological show. This is probably yeah, why I enjoy it a lot. Sure. I do get a big kick we out of like, the name, uh, folks. <laughs> uh, Mark Fisher's the whole writing on hauntology is like hugely important to me. Like his blog, uh, K-Punk. Like I used to read that back in the day. And um, yeah, it's true. I think like Vaporwave is hauntological. And I think that the choice of using that genre of music works very well for the show because... Um, 
it's we're talking about music that's like in the style of old like midi compositions from the mm-hmm. 90s right it's music that's taking the styles of music that were like commercial uh around the internet and computing and software in the 90s and like taking that and now doing something new with it and like kind of deterring it and doing all kinds of wild stuff with it and mm-hmm. um looking at that moment that utopian futuristic like kind of moment in the 90s with the internet and like looking at it from today's perspective and that's what we're doing with the show too you know like we're looking at this old software we're looking at it as it still exists today and thinking about like what it means that it still exists today and so there really is like a thematic connection i think between what we're doing with the show and that entire genre of music yeah definitely lost features and it quite literal sense yeah. in a lot of this. Um, but to go back to, I think, uh, Aaron, your original question was about, like, if there were any surprises or revelations mm-hmm. while we were creating the show. And the one that comes to mind for me um, was, uh, well, a couple of things uh, surrounding uh, our season one episode on Doom. Uh, first of all, I wasn't really familiar. I knew what Doom was as a game, as a series of video games. Um, Truly a masterpiece of gaming. Yeah, I never played it much. I've always been real shit at FPS games (laughs) (laughs) Um, and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, Derek uh, luckily, you know, knew about Liz Ryerson and uh, her work uh, revolving um, around Doom and especially like the more esoteric and uh, really interestingly designed uh, Doom maps and uh, Doom wads. Like custom uh, maps made by players, yeah. Yeah, yeah, collections of maps. Um, and so that in itself was a revelation. Um, and, uh, you know, going in spectate mode online and watching somebody uh, play, you know, as the Doom guy shooting cyber demons and stuff while talking about, like, roadside picnic <laughs> and the, the zone, um, <laughs> that was a revelation. But um, to give a quick... Um, you know, kind of a plug, not, you know, whatever, but (laughs) I guess a quick plug for anyone uh, who's thinking about subscribing to Means TV. uh, Please do, by the way. Please do. If you are a paid subscriber, you will um, get access to uh, these sort of bonus expeditions that we did for season one, which are uh, even more cozy. They're (laughs) much, much more loosely. It's it's basically just uh, Derek and I um, vibing in some of these um, online spaces. Yeah, we basically did the uh, classic Twitch streamer type of thing where we just like uh, went into like Second Life or Doom or whatever and just like played together and like saw what we saw. I gotta yeah. get high and watch this later. Okay. Yeah, you gotta scroll, you gotta scroll down on the. the oh, the you gotta scroll down. It's like bonus. Yeah. Okay. 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 <laughs> it's definitely. Yeah. Um, okay. It's definitely not as high effort as the episodes, but oh, yeah. uh, no, it's, we had fun. Yeah, it's much more just like a loose, like hangout kind of thing. Um, but as a special thing for Means TV subscribers. Can I describe um, the thing from the Doom episode that I think you're well, you were about to talk was, about it, right? That was going to be my answer. Go for it. Go so for I, it. <laughs> so, so, so for the Doom one, um, Derek and I joined some online um, Doom games, like some real like um, deathmatch, like team, you know, whatever things, and all the different little rooms are showing up of like the different titles of like the the matches and stuff, and we found. Uh, some that were like custom skins, so it was like a Mega Man themed uh, like fighting game where you get into teams and you play as the different robot bosses and you shoot each other uh, with your stuff. Um, but then we saw one that was also inexplicably uh, Mega Man themed, 
Um, and it seemed to be spawned out of that, um, like an offshoot of that uh, code or, or custom uh, version of Doom, um, where it was Mega Man, but it was completely social. Uh, like all the shooting was really taken out and it was just like a social kind of chat environment. Um, people had like rooms, like like really like the power users of the place, like had little like rooms in this little palace. It was like, called like their VIP rooms. Yeah, it was yeah. called the, the map was called Community Hotel and it was just a exactly. little social world like in Doom Online. Like uh and yeah, they, every, had, a, they had little yeah. hotel rooms with their names on it and stuff. It was they, wild. They had a they had a jukebox where you could play plastic love or like Furby music. <laughs> wow. The really homestuck music. Um, like there was yeah. there's a fishing thing they built in Doom in that, like you'd go fishing. Yeah. You could actually yeah. go fishing. Yeah, yeah you oh, could catch like trout and stuff. So odd. Yo, that's so bizarre, but awesome. It was so, so cool. People were just chatting in this thing, like and we yeah. just stumbled into it, like not knowing that that even existed, but just like going yeah. into Doom online deathmatch and like, oh, community hotel, what's that? Oh my god, <laughs> this is a virtual world. <laughs> yeah. So so that is definitely sort of the surprise that like put the biggest smile on my face. Yeah, me too, actually. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think of like I think um one of the most outrageous surprises for me was uh, when we were recording in Second Life with our guest and we're walking around and uh, our guest Artemis is showing us all of these different um, plots of land in Second Life that people like built their little homesteads on or whatever. And then we see a sign and suddenly realize that it is a sign advertising a uh, real estate like um uh, agent it's like a real estate agent what, like a real world a real estate agent like a, you could go to a, his link like his, you could click on go to his left page or some shit like that even mean? weirder it was a second life real estate agent like it was a real estate agent that didn't sell real land he sold second he stole, life it, land but that, that reminds me of like um when yuki uh, was talking about um 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 gemstone four and somebody was selling like a sword that was like worth fifteen hundred dollars yeah. or something like that you know what i mean i'm just yeah. like I, I mean, again, like, you know, I, I guess people find um, um, everyone finds their their own personal enjoyment, entertainment in these virtual worlds. But I personally would not replicate the uh, the ills of this society. You know? but, oh, just yeah. I, would, I would simply pay a month of rent. Yeah, exactly. 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 <laughs> no, that, that's so crazy that people are even doing that. Like, it, it's, why would that be your first instinct? It's like, oh, I'm, time to be a landlord now. Yeah, yeah, seriously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, dude, this is again why I think the space analogy works because I don't trust human beings to go out there in space and like not recreate the same shit we did here. Yeah. Maybe, but then again, you know, I don't know, man. Because um, I, I will say though that this this series, like again, like I'm a luddite, but uh, but it's a hauntological show and it is about lost futures and it did make me. Because sometimes I'm like, no, technology's evil, it's fucking bad, you know. But I'm like, no, that's not true. <sighs> It's about the system, right? In which it's like created in, right? So it's yeah. hard to say, right? But um, this this show really did make me appreciate like not only like the online communities that I found before, you know, but just like this sort of time where like, I don't know, I feel like the 90s, especially I'm a 90s kid and it felt like we were on the bleeding edge of the future, you know? Mm -hmm. Like I remember totally. reading like popular science magazines when people actually read popular science magazines, like about the space shuttle, you know, and about stem cell research. And I mean, these things were politicized, but also about AI, you know? Yeah, the and Mars then, like, Lander, remember the that? Mar exactly, the Mars that Lander, so, dude. And it's like, okay, so AI now is like, instead of like, I mean, it is replacing like some of the work that people don't want to do or shouldn't be doing, sure. But then it's also like, replacing artists you know mm -hmm. you know what i mean creative individuals so it's again it's like this show just 
I don't know. It also made me think, I guess the last kind of question too. Do you guys, um, because during the pandemic again, right, Um, we saw like a resurgence, right? And people returning to these uh, virtual worlds. Yeah. Do you see... Do you see like a resurgence? I mean, I think it, what is it? I think Second Life is in its like, or no, is it Final, well, Final Fantasy 14 rather actually? I was surprised to know that it's still online, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, and some of these are in like some of like Gemstone before it's like 30 years, I think. Do you see like people, these like spaces continuing to grow or like will there always hopefully be like a little niche for them somewhere online? I think there always will be. I think uh, it's definitely clear that they got a bit of a boost, I think, from the pandemic. Um, Right. You know, I think something that will be interesting about our show in like a decade or two is going to be just how much it's in the pandemic. Like um, season one was shot like in 2020, you know, and all our interviews Mm -hmm. were like a few months into the pandemic, basically. Wow. And uh, season two, like we recorded our interviews in like early 2022, a lot of them early to mid 2022, which was still like, I mean, we're still in the pandemic, but it was like, we were even more like coming out of lockdown at that time. Right. And, um, so a lot of the conversations we had in the show, like were around COVID or COVID was definitely a like looming thing around it. And it, I mean, a lot of the people we talked to would say like, you know, I got into this game because it was the pandemic and I was looking for something to do and ways to connect with people. Mm-hmm. So I think there was a bit of a boost to this stuff from that, just people seeking a social outlet where it felt like they were embodied in a space with other people when you were like stuck in your house, couldn't really do that. Right. So as people get more outside their houses and more back into the regular swing of things, I think, um, yeah, probably some of that boost will uh, go back down. Like the wave will recede a little bit, but I think um, virtual worlds were already a pretty big thing even before the pandemic. And I think they're still going to be a big thing for a lot of different reasons. Like it'll always be a niche of the internet, I think. I mean, it makes me want to, go and explore some of these virtual worlds i'm not gonna lie to you like i think i'm literally gonna play final fantasy 14 i, I might check it out it's I, cool. might actually check it I, out. I recommend it i think it's pretty fun i will say that uh it takes a while to get into the good stuff unfortunately that's what people always say with shit like this right but it's true uh the the game starts out and like the base game like the writing is kind of bad and then when they get to the ex- first expansion then the writing st- suddenly fucking skyrockets it's crazy <laughs> like it gets so good it's like way better writing than like most video games it's crazy i i recommend it i like that game yeah it's really it is really interesting uh, the way I, the way i kind of conceptualize like final fantasy 14 in terms of a lot of video games it's like reminds me of like it's like the one piece of like anime yeah it goes on and on it's so long after after episode (laughs) 300 it starts getting amazing that's what it's like yeah i'm not even kidding you it's like yeah play like this boring stuff for 60 hours and then it gets amazing yeah that's that's literally what it is (laughs) yeah Yeah, i could kind of see that i guess the analogy i could kind of make is like maybe star trek you know the first of any 90s trek the first two seasons are kind of spotty you know probably possibly even really bad like an incredibly racist episode Mm -hmm. uh, of the first season if anyone knows what i'm talking about but then by the third season it's a it's one of the best damn shows on tv but um that's totally what it's like. Yeah, like with Next Generation. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. But um, Jorge, do you have any other questions? Did you want to ask? Yeah, one last question. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, Hauntological Show, Lost Futures. We talk about the Lost Futures and possibilities. So then maybe to y'all, what do you think would be the place for virtual worlds under socialism? Oh, that's a good question. That's, yeah, that's a good question. That's that cool is... Question. Uh, 
a question that comes up in our last episode of season one and in our last episode of season two. So look out for that. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like one thing is that um, you would expect them to be a little more accessible, like right? Like you don't need like right now, like a lot of virtual worlds, you need like a nice computer for um, some technical know-how, et cetera. Um, I think if everybody had like the resources to like spend their time the way they like, more maybe more people would get into this stuff i don't know i think um you might see virtual worlds like maybe be a little more fantastical i guess like uh instead of like trying to emulate the experience of like going to a fancy club and spending a bunch of money at the club right if everyone can just do that like if everyone can just go out and have a good time at a club without needing to spend like too much money or like whatever if there's not that gating like in real life then maybe virtual worlds get more like fantastical of like this is a place to do things you can't do in real life just by the laws of physics or whatever right like build a space station in the last episode um i think in um in um what was this active worlds i guess like i think in their 2001 you know that they modeled after space (laughs) odyssey like yeah yeah, you would do some shit like that because you know god knows we're not going to make it in the real world but yeah you can explore a space station or mars right in virtual world instead of a going to a club yeah it's like for for playing pretend right but for not not trying to sound dismissive or whatever like uh, but i mean like just like living out a fantasy that you can't live out in the real world like that's there's always going to be a place for that and uh i guess i would add um to to parrot one of our um guests in our final episode uh of season two um if anyone is familiar already with paolo Pettercini, uh he's uh made some really great leftist games he's made dsa simulator and recently put out green new deal simulator um mm. but he does some cool stuff and he was uh, really lucid on this particular subject. And um, some, some things that he said, not all of it actually ended up in the episode because it was so jam-packed, uh, but something he said in the interview that's really stuck with me is that um, like virtual worlds, things like World of Warcraft um, are actually like hugely resource intensive. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about trying to create uh, spaces that persist in the way that world of warcraft does like it's not like every time you log off and log back on the world is reset everything has to like run continuously forever and that's a lot of resources that um you know maybe if we are socially um you know as a global population or a national group or whatever you know if we're um all socially um controlling how we allocate the limited resources on this planet you know um maybe that kind of stuff doesn't happen in exactly the same way but i think virtual worlds uh it's beyond you know a novelty there's like value to it um that we've seen in you know our episodes and i think um under socialism under some sort of utopian uh society we'll still want those things but the main things that will change is um will be prioritizing the things that are most important and most socially productive about these spaces. Um, the fact that you can um, feel presence, especially with people who aren't geographically close to you, um, is really valuable. The, the fact that um, you have the potential to create and share um, spaces and environments and things, just, um, just in general, being able to 
um, share information and, and media with each other um, is like a really valuable aspect of the internet, right? And it goes back to like even the Usenet days uh, of it, of just like an openness of sharing content and information with each other. Um, and I think to me, a virtual world under socialism is, a, is about that. It's about people being able to come together, share things with each other, uh, and have that kind of experience. Um, and like Derek was saying, um, you know, with an element of things that aren't doable in real life, you know, yeah. <laughs> being able to do that and, and flying around or, or hanging out in a magical, fantastical place, uh, or even one that just works on surreal dream logic. Um, mm. For anyone who's played games like LSD, Dream Emulator. Simulator, mm. I think. Uh, oh, simulator, I'm, I'm, thank about you. About after, yeah. I'm about to after listening. That game's sure. cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, but there's like things that you can do that are like, it's beyond, um, you know, living out of fantasy, uh, like a space station uh, or, or a space colony on Mars. But it's like beyond things that are like physically doable in Euclidean mm. space. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, so there's like, there's potential for like really fun um, and, and enjoyable stuff to be done. And but experiments about, with social relations too, right? Like yeah. you can set up like situations, you know, in a virtual mm -hmm. world and experiment yeah. with that. Yeah. And, and yeah. And, and kind of games like that, that um, you can establish and, and it's all done yeah, for like really socially positive reasons. Um, and, and that to me is, I guess, more of it, it's less a difference in like what they look like and, and more a, a, a shift in like why we're doing these things. Yeah, yeah. I really like the fact that you brought up um, ecologically sustainable um, um, sort of virtual worlds because um, I just thought about the other day, I was like, I was thinking of this story um, before I realized that this was basically Johnny Mnemonic. And I was like, no, I can't do that. I was like, <laughs> what if like all data ran out, you know? And I was like, well, how'd that work? You know, and um, I was just doing some Googling and, you know, um, apparently, um, you know, in order to keep up, I guess, with um, the amount of data that we produce, right? Um, we'd have to cover the entire globe, right? With like data centers, right? And also mm -hmm. too, um, they're also like, um, you know, uh, um, uh, sub subject to like um, climate change and things like that. So I don't know. It's just like how much energy we use, right, right. to keep all of our stuff, right, and, and transfer all this data. Um, it's something that I don't really think about, you know, unless I'm trying to write a story. But it's something that um I think that you know would hopefully not hopefully it would be different in like you know socialist society. You know, I think that. Mm -hmm. We would again. I really do like that quote about um that that woman brought up at the end of the last episode, um episode six, where she talks about is this a is this like you just said, Mitchell? Like, why are we doing this? Right? Are we doing this as a way to um escape from the world, the, the natural world that we destroyed, or is there a way to like live in harmony with like nature and also that digital world that we've created for ourselves? You know, that is also metaphysical. I didn't think about that too. Right? That's not just about sort of exploring outer space but again those inner spaces right mm -hmm. that yeah. you're not really able to do otherwise you know mm -hmm. yeah yeah, yeah sure. it's really fascinating yeah for for the revolution that kind of would occur in the real world there would need to be a extension and analogous one in the digital ones we create because if we yeah. think about it the digital world that we've made is really the extension of a long historic process of developing our minds Absolutely. Absolutely. And it culminates in in the metaverse. For some reason, I don't know why the fuck anybody want to do this, but walking around in a shopping in a supermarket yeah. in the metaverse. God. That is when I saw that, man, that shit just like 
I mean, I was already like, no, this is not going to work. This sucks. You know, this is like, you know, this is exploitative. This is rapacious, whatever. But then I saw that and I was like, this is like a midstopia. That's what yeah. I've been saying, man. We live in a we live in a mids dystopia. We really do. I'm not saying it's not a bad dystopia. It's really bad, but it's not like somebody on my Twitter said it's not like the cool cyberpunk, you know, where like, yeah, like your body gets loaned out by like a biotech company to become an assassin, you know, Moonlight right. is an assassin. Like instead, like you know, you're scrolling your feed when you're depressed mm -hmm. and like they know that you're scrolling your feed because you're depressed. And they like offer you like some virtual like psychologist or therapist. Or something right, like that. right, 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 right. That's right. the midst dystopia that we live in, you know, and then you yeah. get in your electric Uber and it'll blow up or maybe you'll miss a payment. It'll drive itself back to the factory anyway. Um, <laughs> guys, uh, thank you so much, guys, for um for coming on. I like this has been a long time coming. Uh, Again, if you're not subscribed to Means TV, um, you definitely should. You should also, you already subscribed to this podcast if you're listening to this episode, but tell your friends. And um, yeah, you guys should definitely, uh, the audience, you should definitely check out Preserving Worlds. It's, uh, I mean, it's TV. I mean, you guys just have like uh, an amazing catalog of just like, just stuff you're not going to see anywhere else, you know? And um, this this documentary series, Preserving Worlds, included that. So again, Derek and Mitchell, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. This is a great time. It's wonderful. Yeah. All right, thank you.